It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of two girls. Is part of our efforts to try to illuminate the different topics involved with the Richard Allen case, we've been talking to a variety of experts to get their thoughts and analysis. Previously, we spoke to a criminal defense attorney from the southern half of the United States. Today, we'll be speaking with another criminal defense attorney from the western half of the United States. This is a criminal defense attorney who has 25 years of experience. He has been involved with a number of high-profile cases and has also taught trial practice at law school. He asked that we do not use his name, but we verified his identity and his qualifications. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. 
We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet. And this is The Delphi Murders, a conversation with another defense attorney. I do have a ton of a ton of experience in search and seizure uh, law. All, all search and seizure law is, is grounded in, in Fourth Amendment law. You can't a state can't provide less protection than than the federal constitution does. And one thing I one thing I kind of want to talk to you guys about, which, what interests me about this case, is that they have now had probable cause it appears to search three different uh, people's homes for the murder of these two girls, which is kind of crazy, right? Because in theory, at one at any one point in time, there can't be prob unless people are acting in concert. There can't be probable cause that two different people committed the same crime, and the reason why is that you have to have more than fifty percent to get probable cause. And so, if it's fifty percent that Ron Logan, if it's if it's fifty one percent probable that Ron Logan committed these murders. How could it be 51% probable that Richard Allen or, or Kagan Klein did as well? Now, I understand that, you know, analysis can change over time and, and the targets of investigation can change over time. But it's interesting to me that they've now had probable cause three times to search. And, and you know, it sounds like they finally got the right guy, hopefully. Um, but I think that's, really, that's, that's a really interesting aspect to this case. If you were defending Allen, would you make use of the fact they've had probable cause for other people as well? Absolutely. My position would be, how could you have probable cause to arrest Richard Allen when you've already had probable cause to arrest two other subjects? I think that's going to be, you know, a fundamental component of, of their argument. And, and so they had to have probable cause twice. Uh, with respect to Richard Allen, and I mentioned this in my email to you guys, right? They had to have probable cause for the initial search of his residence, and then later probable cause for the arrest. The entire probable cause for the arrest comes from, you know, more or less from the gun and the search of the house. 
You mentioned uh, the element of other suspects coming up in the past. And of course, you know, I mean, given the nature of discovery, there may be even uh, suspects that we've never even heard of that, you know, that the defense will have access to, you know, the files on those people. Going back to that, is it is it does it make it a little bit less of a negative impact for the prosecution? The fact that the Ron Logan lead came up in 2017 and seemingly hasn't gone anywhere since. Yeah. And like I said, uh, you know, the prosecution's response to that is going to be, well, you know, the, the investigation has sort of morphed over time. In, in 2017, it looked like Ron Logan did it. And, and, and Kagan Klein, they searched Kagan Klein's house before Ron Logan even, right? That was That's earlier correct. in 2017. Yeah. You know, and then we continued our investigation and, you know, here we are in 2022 and the investigation has gone a different direction. And now we have probable cause uh, based on these factors for Rick Allen, Richard Allen. That's going to be their response, of course. It is. Yeah, it has to be. And and one thing that they have been hinting at, uh, the prosecution law enforcement, is that they do believe that there are other actors involved. And I guess, you know, from the defense perspective, what is the strategy with dealing with that? Because I can imagine that that could also be a bit of a weakness for the prosecution if they're introducing other people. The PC affidavit makes no mention of other people. I don't know why it wouldn't if there were other people involved. I think it's a dangerous road for the prosecutor to go down to say there are other people if there aren't. Uh, I think there's already been some discussion about this, perhaps on your podcast, that if you do that and you can't produce other people, then the, then the defense is going to get up and say these other people that the prosecutor thought, you know, did this. Where are they? Why aren't they here? You know, they're the ones who are, who are liable, not my client. So I think that creates a problem for the prosecutor if they are just doing that, you know, without anything to back it up. Now, I think if there is someone else involved, and I, I mentioned this in my email to you, you know, the most logical person would be Kagan Klein, right? And I say that because uh, for several reasons, the Anthony Schatz um, communications with Liberty uh, German, coupled with all of the activity that was happening around Kagan Klein's case short in time before Richard Allen was arrested. But it's difficult for me to envision what that involvement by Kagan Klein would have looked like, right? Because the witnesses who put Allen or someone who looks like Allen at the site don't put him there with anyone else, either before uh, the murders or after the murders, if you read the PC affidavit. And they'll certainly be able to tell. Um, a lot of these cases are, are solved with, you know, digital technology these days. They're going to be able to tell whether or not Richard Allen and Kagan Klein were having communications. I mean, that's going to be easy for them to establish. Even after possibly five years and, and, you know, possible technology switches or deletions like that, you think that there could still be a trace? I think those records are somewhere. Yeah. With a phone company or unless everyone was using burner phones. I mean, cell, cell phones are, you know, are, are pretty much part of every case these days. If you look at the probable cause affidavit, I think it's really interesting that they put in there and that they had gotten from Richard Allen uh, back in 2017, the identifying characteristics of his cell phone. And so clearly that cell phones are going to be a big part of this prosecution where cell phones were at any given time. Absolutely. And I know you also mentioned in your email, um, you know, just the fact that Rick Allen placed himself 
at the scene wearing the same clothing as Bridge Guy. And this is really one of the most bizarre facts of the case. Once once that came out, it, it, I try to think in my mind, and I'm sure you guys have too, if Richard Allen, in fact, committed these homicides, why on earth would he ever place himself at the scene? There's a couple reasons that I can think of, right? I mean, he knew... He knew that someone else knew he was there, and so he wanted to stay ahead of the story. That's the most, to me, that's the most obvious reason. Either someone made his car, the witnesses who saw him on the trail. Other reasons, you know, I know Doug Carter has always thought that the person involved in this case had inserted himself in the investigation at some point in time. And if they're right with Richard Allen, being the the perpetrator, then then Doug Carter was right on that, and and that seems to be you know I'm not a criminal profiler by any means, but that seems to be something that that people who commit these types of crimes uh, often do, right? Insert themselves into the investigation. And mm-hmm. I'm not a psychologist; I can't tell you the the psychological reasons why someone would do that. But it, to me, it's it, it's absolutely fascinating that. Richard Allen, if he in fact did this, would place himself there. Yeah. And then all this, the, then all of this other stuff, you know, doesn't matter as much. The, the, the Hoosier hard uh, was it Hoosier Harvester store tapes showing him coming and going. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he he puts himself there, right? And and so right, it, it's really it's it's odd to me to think, and, and so his the fact that his cell phone is is going to be there, you know. How much can they do with that? Because he's already putting himself there. They're still going to have to tie into the murders in, in, in some way. I don't think the gun, the, the uh, non-fire round, is going to do it. They have to. They have to have something else. What's interesting to me is the fact that they're basically charging him with Indiana's equivalent of felony murder. So there's an element of like maybe they're feeling that they only have to prove the kidnapping in order to prove murder. In this, and I wonder what what are your thoughts on their use of felony murder in this case? You know, I think it's appropriate. Uh, we don't have, uh, I don't know what the murder statutes look like in Indiana. In my state, we have uh, sort of like a first degree and a, and a second degree murder. The first degree sort of being like a premeditated, intentional type of murder. I think that, I think if they can prove Richard Allen did this, I think they're good, you know, under either theory. Kind of responding to something that, that the uh, other lawyer said in the last podcast. One thing that I disagree with him saying is that, you know, Richard Allen's attorneys have boxed him in by claiming actual innocence. This isn't a, this is a case where if he did it, there's not going to be any defenses, right? He's not going to be able to argue self-defense or defensive property or defensive others. He either did it or he didn't do it. So I, I agree with the strategy, you know, if, if that's in fact what Richard Allen is telling his attorneys to come out and say, no, you, you got the wrong guy here. Because uh, there's not going to be any defenses, right? These are two very young girls. It, 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 he either did it intentionally or he didn't do it. Those are the only two possible scenarios in my mind. And so I think it's okay for his attorneys to come out and say he's innocent if that's, in fact, you know, what he's telling them. And, and is it fair to say that an insanity defense is a pretty high hurdle to clear? And if you don't clear it, then that's <laughs> there's some pretty big problems that come with that. There's there's not going to be an insanity defense here. I, I, there's 
those are almost impossible to win, first of all. And for someone to commit murders and then go back and work at a CVS pharmacy for five years like nothing ever happened, there's there's just no way. I would be shocked if, if they go down that road. It's going to be, their, their defense is going to be that they got the wrong guy. We'll get back to our conversation in a moment, but first here's a word from some of our terrific sponsors. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, You mentioned you've done a lot of work in like search and seizure law. Uh, I'm curious, can you walk our audience through perhaps some ways uh, a defense attorney would be able to get material taken from a search suppressed? Sure. And so I would tell you what I would do in a case like this, right? So the, the first search, as I understand it, was in early October of uh, the or the search was in early October of Richard Allen's residence. It sounds like that's where they found the firearm. That's where they found um, some other items that were apparently of interest that they're not really talking about yet. Um, that's where they found the clothes that they believe matched the description of what Richard Allen was wearing. And then they go back later, and based on what they find in the search, 
they talked to Richard Allen, I believe it was like on October 26th or something like that. So if I were an attorney uh, working this case, I would file a motion to uh, controvert the search warrant and a motion to suppress evidence. And in my state, what that would look like, I'm sure Indiana is similar. In my state, what that would look like, because these are all based on federal law. What my state, what that would look like is we would say that um, the search warrant, we call him an affiant, the person who filled out the affidavit. I don't know if it was Doug Carter or if it was someone else in this case, but I would say that the person who did that um, did not establish probable cause for the search. And that would be the motion to suppress. And if it were warranted, if I thought it were warranted, I would also file a motion to controvert saying that either material things that detracted from probable cause were left out of the affidavit or that some of the things in the affidavit that were put in the affidavit were not accurate and those things should be taken out of the affidavit and it should be uh, essentially uh, viewed again in a new light. If that were successful, uh, if if the police did not have probable cause to search Richard Allen's home, then all of the fruits of that search would then be suppressed. And um, then I would also file, and that would include everything that was taken from the house. I would then say the interview of Richard Allen also needs to be suppressed because that is tainted, that is fruit of the poisonous tree of by uh, of and by the illegal search of Richard Allen's residence, which I believe was on October 13th, 13th of 2022. And so this case is really going to rise and fall. And, and we don't know it yet, right? Because we haven't seen the search warrant affidavit. This case is going to rise and fall on, I think, two things. One, whether or not the search of Richard Allen's residence was supported by probable cause, and two, what other evidence they have other than um, this non-fired, uh, expelled round out of uh, what appears to be out of Mr. Allen's uh, six-hour 40. Now, again, like I said before, they have to have other evidence other than this firearm, right, because there had to have been probable cause to get inside Richard Allen's home. Have you guys tried to find the actual search warrant or the search warrant affidavit for oh, yes. the Richard Allen residence? We have indeed. We uh, reached out to the court. What did they say, Kevin? Uh, the court who has this case currently said it was not part of that case file. and They had no access to it or ability to release it. That's what they told us. That makes zero sense to me. It didn't make a lot of sense to us either, to be honest. But we're trying. I would, I would say, you know, even if they don't give you, and I think I mentioned this in my email to you, even if they don't give you the affidavit, you should be able to get the search warrant. And what I would really want to know is, you know, now correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding that, you know, Doug Carter and, and Tobe Lesenby and, and these guys have said they have DNA evidence recovered from the crime. Is that correct? Um, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll say that there's been a lot of, vague statements made about DNA in this case, but frankly, um, given that it's been unsolved for so long, I think Kevin and I are somewhat skeptical on the nature or strength of the DNA evidence. I mean, we don't know that for a fact, but it's just our thoughts on it. 
it would be hard for a person to have committed these offenses without leaving any DNA behind at all, mm-hmm. given given the violent nature of the assault and the murders, as I understand them to be. Um, you know, I it, it it sounds like the media is saying there was no sexual assault, but then it also sounds like from the PC affidavit that these girls' clothes ended up in the creek, which to me is indicative of, of them being sexually assaulted. Um, and if there was a sexual assault, then there's absolutely going to be DNA. Right. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if it's there's possible offender DNA, but it's a small sample and they were reluctant to, you know, use it and destroy it in the process. Um, and, and maybe now that they have someone to compare it against, maybe now they will. That's my that's just speculation on my part, to be honest. That is going to be their the linchpin of their case. If they can put his DNA at the scene, then they got this guy dead to right. So that's what they really need. Or, you know, if they found something in his in his house that either has the girl's DNA on it, or if it's some type of, you know, there's a ne- mentioned that perhaps some souvenirs were taken taken from these girls. If they found something like that, well, then they got him dead to rights as well. And I'm I'm coming from the perspective where I w- would absolutely love to see this case solved. Right? You know, I just my heart goes out to the the families in this case. And this, you know, I have kids this age, and to think that they could just vanish into thin air and not have answers for five years is, you know, unthinkable to me. So I, I would I would love to see this case solved. But that being said, I also want the right guy to go down for it like I know you guys do as well I know you mentioned that on your podcast absolutely it's just a double tragedy if the wrong person gets convicted you know it, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't hold anyone accountable who well, deserves it well, it's and... a triple tragedy because the girls are dead the wrong guy's convicted and the right guy's still out there that's a good point okay. um, in terms of uh, the DNA element this is kind of something that popped to mind as we were talking uh, you know if, if they did somehow match a perpetrator's DNA in this case would that be possibly suppressed by anything, or is that much more of a solid uh, branch for the prosecution to sort of stand on? Well, I mean, they have absolute right to whatever DNA was left to the crime at the crime scene. There's no uh, absolutely no ability to suppress that. If DNA was obtained and uh, tested from Richard Allen, then that could be subject to suppression, depending on how they obtained it. Um, and there's, there's different ways they could have obtained it. If they obtained it through a search warrant and the search warrant is good, then they're good. You know, oftentimes police try to obtain uh, DNA, I guess that surreptitiously would be a, a good way to say it, uh, where they're, you know, trying to get a hold of a straw or a cup or, or, or something of, of this nature. I think that is, is more questionable, that type of a DNA, um, you know, obtaining a DNA in that fashion versus getting it from the search warrant. And one more thing I'll say about search warrants is, Courts give preference to judicially authorized searches over probable cause and exigent circumstance-based searches. And so the state has a, a better chance holding in the search in this case because there's a search warrant versus they're at the door of Richard Allen's house and they thought he was destroying evidence in some fashion and they decided to you know, make entry. That makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask you about one element of this that happened recently. Uh, there was a just a motion uh, by the defense to uh, Kevin. What are the lawyer terms? You know, 
change, change venue. Um, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, why don't we start yeah, with Yeah, let's that start one. with change venue. T- talk us about your impressions about that. Well, I think they have to. Uh, I've never been to Indiana, but I understand Carroll County to be a, a tiny little place. Um, and I am sure they're, they're not going to be able to find a single person in Carroll County who not only does not know about this case, but, you know, has formed opinions about this case. My last trial was, was a very high-profile trial in a very small county. And we went through 550 jurors before we found 12 who didn't know about the case. And we were, we were down literally to our last few people before we were, we were going to have to change venue. I think courts don't like that sort of a disfavored motion in general. But I would be surprised in this case if venue weren't changed. And then I'm, I'm sure this won't come as a surprise to you uh, in our inbox. And I think the public in general often has a critical view of defense attorneys and the work they do. And they also often have a critical view of the fact that some people who aren't able to pay for their own attorney use public defenders, which are paid for by the taxpayer. Can you explain why it's important for people to have defense attorneys and public defenders? Yeah. So uh, anyone and everyone in this country is entitled to a defense attorney, uh, to a lawyer. And that is because our rule of law is based upon the premise that all defendants are presumed innocent and that the government must prove its case against the person beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you look at the history of the world and of this country, you will see that the government, the state, is quite often wrong and sometimes worse. And when I say worse, I mean sometimes they even fabricate evidence uh, when it accuses someone of committing a crime. And uh, what I've seen in my practice, and certainly paying attention to other cases nationwide, is that even with the protections that we afford criminal defendants in every case, uh, you know, the right to an attorney, the presumption of innocence, uh, the high burden of proof, proof beyond a reasonable doubt required in all cases, I feel that it is still very easy uh, for the state to convict someone of a crime. Uh, The state has a tremendous amount of power when it comes uh, to this area of our lives, the ability to commit, sorry, to convict someone of a crime and to put them in prison. And, And sometimes they get that wrong for whatever reason. I sometimes joke that all prosecutors start every case on third base. um, And then I further joke that sometimes they hit a triple. And the reason I say this, and and there's some truth to it, is that they have a a tremendous amount of power with respect to where to bring a case, when to bring a case, how to bring a case. And the resources they have are are always going to be outmatched uh, by the defense side. Um, And... Because of these dynamics, um, and, and if you include the dynamic also that I, I think that juries have a tendency to, to convict people. I think juries walk into court wanting to convict people. I think they sort of think that the person 
is there for a reason when they when the jury gets there and and they wouldn't be there had they not done something and in particular in a case like this with such heinous crimes the jury is going to have that um, sort of uh, pre preset set going into the case so that in our country the present the principles that the presumption of innocence uh, shall apply to all cases that we have the right to confront witnesses that the state has to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt uh, we have all these in, in our criminal defense system because we feel that you know the founders of our country feel and the courts feel that these protections are more important than the result of any single case. The theory being it's better to have a guilty person free than to have an innocent person sit in jail. And certainly if you look uh, you know, at the, at the Innocence Project or if you look at all of the people who have been released or exonerated on DNA evidence in this country, uh, you could easily conclude that, you know, it's not hard to convict someone and, and that the government does often get it wrong. Um, and again, the juries, you know, once they get into the courtroom, I do believe that the juries want to convict people. I really think that it's kind of a lack of empathy if people are saying, oh, you know, people shouldn't have defense attorneys. It's like if you or a loved one were accused of something that you didn't do and the public made up their mind about you and the government made their mind up about you and threw away the key, you know, nobody would like that. <laughs> um, you and, know, And I see that all the time in my practice. People who, you know, have historically had that attitude, all of a sudden they're in trouble or their son's in trouble. And then someone in my position becomes their savior. I, I will say, Anya, that in... In the 25 years that I have been in practice, it has been nice to see, because when I started my practice, defense attorneys were the devil and, and prosecutors were the saints, and there was really no gray area. That, that was kind of the public perception. When I go into a jury trial during the jury selection process, I always make sure to ask people what the perceptions of defense attorneys are and what the perceptions of prosecutors are, because I want those people off who still have that mindset. But what I have seen in, in my 25 years of practice is that sort of the script has flipped. And I think a lot of people now consider the prosecutors to be the bad guys and the defense attorneys, you know, to be the good guys. And, of course, there's a lot of anti-government sentiment going on in, in the world these days. And I think that's part of it. But I think there's also been a recognition, a lot of it, you know, well documented by the media that when we don't have good defense attorneys, and even sometimes when we do, innocent people get convicted for crimes they didn't commit. I feel like the best, the best, uh, the best of both worlds is you know, prosecutors and defense attorneys for the most part, by and large, are just people trying to do the best they can at their jobs. And you know, everybody, the public, if they're coming into the justice system as a potential juror, you know, viewing it with that kind of nuance is probably the best way, unless you know, unless you know, specific individuals are acting badly, obviously. Uh, right, right. Then I think there are some process questions that uh, people don't understand or find confusing. Uh, for instance, uh, the Allen's attorneys recently filed a motion to have some ex parte communications with the judge so they can uh, 
share with the judge some of their strategy and explain why they want to uh, have funds to retain specific experts and such. And they want to have these conversations with the judge outside the uh, purview of the prosecutor. Can you discuss why something like that happens? Yeah, and I think that's that's totally appropriate. So the normal rule is uh, you cannot have ex parte contact with the judge about the, the judge who's assigned to the case, about the merits of the case. And for the viewers who don't know, ex parte means uh, one-sided contact. So in this case, it would be the defense lawyer having contact with the judge without the prosecutor being present. Now, in a case like this, for the limited purpose that you're discussing, Kevin, I think it is appropriate because the defense lawyers should be able to um, strategize the case and should be able to consult with experts without the prosecutor knowing that they're doing that, right? The state certainly has that ability. They don't have to go to the judge to um, ask for, for funds. They, you know, they have the, that's already in their budget. And so um, let's say the defense wants to hire, you know, a ballistics expert or a, a DNA expert, or, you know, frequently in a case like this, you would hire a polygrapher, um, someone to do a lie detector on someone like Mr. Allen, if, if he were willing to take one. And that would be the easiest example, right? If you were going to do a polygraph of Richard Allen, um, you wouldn't want anyone else to know that you were doing a polygraph of Richard Allen, because if he failed the polygraph, you would never want that to leave the confines of your attorney-client uh, privilege file. Um, if you pass the, the polygraph, then of course you're going to run to the prosecutor and say, look what I got, you know, Mr. Allen's innocent, here's his polygraph. But um, that would be the easiest example of when you would want to perhaps um, do some some work without the prosecutor knowing about it. And, and I think that would, that would also move forward into um, other type of experts. Let's say the state, uh, with their ballistic expert, you know, provides a report to the defense counsel. The, the defense counsel consults with an expert, and the defense expert, I don't think they're going to say this, but let's say the defense expert were, were to say, yes, I agree with everything that the state says in their report, and this is valid science. Well, the defense wouldn't want the state to know that they consulted with that expert, and that were that expert, that was the findings of that expert. Otherwise, the prosecution would know that the defense's experts are essentially agreeing with the state's experts that there would even be a danger that the prosecution could subpoena the state's experts and call them to testify, you know, against against the defense in a case like this. And, and so there has to be confidentiality between defense counsel and expert consultations in a case like this. And, and so the mechanism that protects that confidentiality is the ex parte application to the judge Absolutely. Is there is there anything I didn't ask about that you wanted to note for the listeners? I, I do want to mention that I think there should not be a rush to judgment in this case. I think there is a danger that whoever they put in front of the jury in this particular case is going to be convicted uh, because of how high profile it is, because of who the victims were, and because of how long this case has been in unsolved, all of which create a dynamic where the community and the people who live in it really need to heal. But I, I would warn against a rush to judgment. You know, 
In 2017, everyone was sure Ron Logan committed these crimes. Turns out he didn't. In 2020 and 21, people were pretty sure Kagan Klein committed these crimes. Um, he may have been involved, he may not. And now, you know, everyone is pretty sure that Richard Allen has committed these crimes. And so I think that what we need to do is just take a step back and, and not make any uh, rushes to judgment about what happened here. We'd like to thank our guest for sharing his thoughts and insights with us. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.